When I was a kid, my mom and dad always had a seemed to have a freaky sense of sort of spider sense, enabling them to know when me or my brother had done things we weren't supposed to do. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. My dad had a, a drawer in his Chester drawers, and it was the middle one. It was the big one, but it was the cool drawer. That was where he kept some coins that he kept. He kept his knife collection, which was pretty neat, his pocket knife collection, an old belt buckle that had belonged to his dad, uh, and some other things along those lines, his baseball glove from when he was a kid. And under normal circumstances, me and my brother would never get in that drawer because dad was home, he would see. But during the summertime, we were home and dad was gone. And the temptation to look in that drawer and see what kind of cool things dad was hiding. Because it was the drawer was like that deep and like that big. So, I mean, it wasn't just the stuff on top. The, the deeper you dug, the more treasures you found in there. But no matter how hard we tried to put everything back exactly as it was, when we came home, dad, he would just like walk in and be like, you got in the drawer, didn't you? I mean, it was just always getting us and recognizing we'd gotten there. And always we, we got in trouble for it. My mom... She told me, she said, no matter where you are, I'll always be able to find you. I'm a mom. I can do that. And, of course, as a kid, you don't really think much about that. You think, whatever, mom. But one day, me and some friends were riding skateboards at East Central University. And we were pretty far off either of any of the main roads, way up deep into the campus. Uh, and mom, just looking for me, just drove right to me. I mean, she wasn't kind of wandering around. She just drove. And we're skating. And I hear, stay, stay. And I look down at the bottom of the hill. And there's my mom. Come on. It's time to go. Uh, she just found us. I mean, she just had a, a sense about where we were and what we were doing. But, you know, no matter how good a sense as they had about what we had done or what we were doing, me or my brother always got away with some things. I mean, no parent just can't fi- figure out everything. Every kid gets away with something. Mom and dad used to joke and say, sometimes they're just going to whip us for the stuff we got away with that they knew that we that they hadn't caught us in. Uh We talk about God as our Heavenly Father, and it's important that we understand God isn't like that. God doesn't have those sort of limitations that a human parent has. While a human parent knows, may know a lot of things, can sense any number of things, there are things they're going to miss. But God isn't that way. But not just with things we do bad, but just with the things that are going on in the world. Because there are times where it can seem as though God doesn't know. God isn't involved. So what we're going to look at in the psalm today, Psalm 10, we're going to see God is a God who sees. So open your Bible to Psalm 10. It should be on page 418. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'll read the whole chapter. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked and the pride in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God, and God is not in any of his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far out of his sight, far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud, and under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den, and he lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. 
He croucheth and humbleth himself, that the poor may fall by the strong ones. He hath, he hath said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, and lift up thine hand, and forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest the mischief and the spite, to requite it with thy hand to the poor. Uh, committeth, the poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till, till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever, and the heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart that will cause thine ear to hear. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed, and the man of the earth may no more oppress. The title of the message tonight is The God Who Sees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we are thankful tonight for the opportunity we have to gather, to study your word, to, to be in this time with you. Father, we know you are here. We know that you are in our midst. We have seen in our study of Revelation that Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. So Jesus is here walking among us, very well aware of all the struggles and the issues and the troubles and trials we may have brought in with us tonight, the cares of our heart, the burdens of our life. And we rejoice to know our Savior is here and our Savior cares. We thank you for your word, the guidance it gives us, the surety we have that it is indeed your word. We are thankful for the Spirit which will be here tonight to take your word and make it living and active, to apply it to our hearts, to plow up the fallow ground so that your word would sink deep into our hearts and bring forth good fruit for your glory. And we ask you to do that tonight. Father, let this time be truly a time with you. Let your word speak to us. Let us hear it as it is, as your word, and let it bring forth the changes which need to be made in our lives. Lord, if we need to be convicted of some sin or wickedness in our life, then do that, Lord. Do that. Let us hear you calling us to turn from this evil thing that you hate and begin to live for you. Father, if we need to be encouraged tonight, let your word and your spirit work together to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us so we could leave here filled with hope and ready to go out into a, a dark world to be lights that would shine brightly for Jesus. Father, you know what we need tonight. You know what we need from this passage. So let your word and your spirit work together to, to bring that to bear and to do that work in our hearts and in our lives. We surrender this time to you. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. All right. Now, there are in this passage, I think, three Three thoughts that are dominant. The first is in verse 1. David's question. Lord, why are you far off? Um, David's concerned that there is a time of trouble going on in his life. And it seems as though God is distant. So that is kind of thought one we see. Thought two is the thought of the wicked in verse 11. Right. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. So you have David, who is the righteous, saying, God, where are you? We've got this bad thing going on. The, the wicked are oppressing the righteous. You seem to be afar off. The wicked has said God doesn't see. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And then the third is verse 14. And here we find that while God seems distant, he's not. 
And while the wicked think God doesn't see, he does. The wicked say God hasn't seen, but the psalmist says thou hast seen it. You behold the mischief and the spite and you will require it. You will repay it. You will bring about the justice which needs to be brought about. And in these three thoughts is the key truth that we need to understand for tonight. God sees the grief and the evil in the world and will, in his time, bring about justice. I think this is a really an important idea for us to understand. Because, and I'll talk about this in a second, there are going to be times where, like David, we feel overwhelmed by the evil we see abounding in the world and we wonder, Why? Isn't God doing something? We, we look and we hear the wicked and it's very clear. Most of them think God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God will never require anything of them. And our, our feeling of God not being present, their ideas of God not seeing and caring, both are wrong. God sees all of our grief. God sees all the evil in the world. And He will in His time Bring about his justice. Now, in this passage, there are three ways God sees the grief and the evil in the world. First, God sees the grief of the righteous. David asked, why why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? As I read this, I can't help but think, who among us hasn't felt this way at times in our lives. Who among us has not gone through a time of difficulty, trouble, of things not going the way we thought they should go? And, and to us, it felt as though God was not there. God was not active. God was not involved. God was not paying attention. Now, we feel that way, even though we know what Scripture says. Now, we know, for instance, Scripture says in Hebrews 13 and 5 that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And there is a a tremendous comfort in in knowing that. But at the same time, in the difficult moments of life, even a suspicion, God is distancing Himself from us. God is standing afar off. God is not seeing what's going on in our lives. It It can lead to despair if we aren't careful. David is wrestling with this issue in this verse. Now, one quick thing. I love the Psalms and I love God's word. But the Psalms show the people of God were real people in a real time. David is very clearly one of the heroes of the Old Testament. And yet, here we have this man after God's own heart going through a time of trouble and wondering. Where are you, God? Why aren't you here? There is, to me, a measure of comfort in knowing. I'm not the first person to have that doubt. I'm not the first person to wrestle with that question. And it's not because I'm a terrible human or a worthless Christian or I have no faith. It's just because I'm a person living in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things happen and I question and I wonder and I doubt, as did everyone who came before. 
man, there's comfort in knowing that. Anyway, moving on. Now, the context of the psalm indicates David is asking these questions during a time when the wicked are oppressing the righteous. David is wondering why the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering and God is not intervening. Now, David, again, was one who knew God's presence and God's voice very, very well. So to him, it seems as though God has stopped speaking. God has stopped being near him. Uh, it's, it's like he is in a time where God is, is nowhere to be found. Now, I've never gone through a time like David went through here where the righteous were oppressed or the wicked were oppressing me. But I have gone through hard times. I have gone through times where it felt like my prayers were just me talking in an empty room. I have felt like somebody had swapped my English Bible for one in Swahili and I understood not a word I was reading. It just like God was everywhere I wasn't and nowhere I was. Now, I believe that these times will come into all of our lives. They came into David's life. They came into everyone's life in the Bible. So these times will come. This is why it's important for us to know God sees what is going on. To know what it says in verse 14. Thou hast seen it. God has seen. Right? And this is why, again, in verse 14, it says, The poor commit themselves unto the Lord. Right? And so this is just kind of a, a quick idea in this. The poor, and the ones David talks about here, the poor uh, were, and the fatherless, were two of the, the most easily oppressed people in their society. Right? Between the orphans and those who were poverty stricken, they had very little rights, very little ability to stand up for themselves. And what they would do was they would commit themselves to God. And God's word frequently reminds us God cared about them and what was going on in their lives. God cared about them and he saw them when no one else cared and no one else saw. And we can take heart in that. We can take heart to know that maybe the world is gone mad. Maybe the, the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And it seems as though our prayers are going on, are falling on deaf ears. But we have to be able to wrestle with this is how I feel versus this is what I know to be true. But we, we have to grind it down in our hearts and in our minds. We know objective truth. God sees. God hears. And God cares. Maybe it doesn't seem that way right now. Maybe things are difficult and it feels as though it's not that way. But there has to be a point where we can say, this is how I feel, but I know something different is true. But I mean, we, I think we all know our feelings are not always accurate, right? I mean, the world says, follow your heart. But God's word says those who follow their hearts are fools. Right? Our feelings are going to lead us astray many times. Just because we feel a way doesn't mean what we feel is right. When we go to mom and dad's house, we go to a town called Asher. And if we go down through Norman and through Lexington to get there, we hit Asher at a four-way stop. And for the first ten years... After they moved back to Ada, when we hit that four-way stop, everything within me felt as though I needed to turn left to go to their house. I mean, it just, I could not wrap my mind around I needed to turn right. And so I felt I should turn that way. That was what my feelings were. But 
my feelings weren't right. The reality was, if I turned left, believing that was right, feeling that was right, I would end up in Shawnee and I would not end up in Pickett Center. I had to go off of what was objectively true, not off of how I felt in my heart. And there is a lesson there for us in going through times of difficulty. It will feel as though God is distant. It will feel as though God is standing afar off and not caring. But the objective truth is he sees, he beholds, and he cares. And so we have to fight our wrong feelings with the objective truth from God's word. God sees the grief of the righteous. God is active in the world, even if we can't see it at a particular time. God sees the grief of the righteous. God sees the evil in the world. And God will, in his time, bring about justice. Secondly, God sees the attitude of the wicked. Now, in verses 2 through 6, David describes the attitudes of those who are causing the problems. Now, what is meant to be the defining characteristic of these people is the very, the very first of verse 2, the wicked. They're wicked. This is their character. They are wicked. Now, everything else they do flows from one of two different things. And they, they really work together. They flow from the fact they are wicked. And something else we'll talk about in just a second. But something that's interesting. As we go down through here and we look at the attitude of the wicked, the way they act and the way they think and the way they treat others, we're going to find the attitudes the wicked David was describing have are all very common in our culture today. It is even entirely possible as we look at the attitude of the wicked, we will see some of those in ourselves. Or we will see some of those in people we love and we care about. And when we do, the temptation is going to be to minimize the fact that David calls them wicked right off the bat. And we cannot do that. If we see these actions in our life, we have to understand those actions, even though we do it, are wickedness. If we see these attitudes in people we love, we have to recognize even though we love them, those actions are wicked. So we get into it. The first attitude of the wicked is pride. The wicked in his pride. Pride seems to be the overarching attitude because almost everything else David describes in verses 2 through 6 flows out of their wicked pride. So if you look at verse 3 or verse 2, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. So this is the very first thing they do. They persecute the poor. Their pride led to tyranny over others. Their pride caused them to think they were so much better than the poor, that the poor were not worthy of being treated with dignity and respect. They could oppress them. They could 
push them down. They could do whatever they wanted to them in order for them to get ahead or to feel better about themselves because they were proud and they were better than them. This, I think, is one of the reasons God hates pride. Pride, when it makes us feel like we are better than someone, we feel the people we're better than are not worthy of our respect. They're not worthy of being treated with the dignity due them as image bearers of God. And so we treat them in disrespectful, degrading ways because in our pride we feel as we are better than them and they are inferior to us. This is what the wicked were doing. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Right, so they're boasting of the wicked desires of their hearts. It's like, these are all the things I want to do. These are all the things I'm going to do. Right, probably these would have been the things like what the Bible, what the New Testament calls the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So it would be things like sexual immorality, drugs, drunkenness, pornography, gossip, just whatever. Right? All of these things that our sinful nature craves, their sinful nature craved it. But rather than saying, this is wrong and I'm going to reject it, I'm going to try to fight it. They did it, but they didn't just even do it in secret. They boasted about it. They boasted about their sexual immorality. They boasted about their pride. They boasted about how they acted in these sinful, greedy, covetous ways. And it is greedy and covetous is a part of it. Because look at what it goes on to say. They, they bless the covetous, the greedy. They praise the greedy. They honored people based upon how much money they had. They... Honored people based upon how much, how many possessions they had. They ignored the ideas of, say, godly integrity or character or, or being righteous by following the Lord. Instead, they looked at their worldly success and they said, those are wonderful people. Those are the people we want to be like. We love them. They are awesome. Which sounds very familiar in our day. And it says in verse 3, they renounce the Lord. Now, the King James says, they bless the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. And I think what the idea from the King James translators is that in covet or in uh, blessing the covetous, they were abandoning God. And I think most translations say some variation of renouncing God. Right? So those who renounce God will often deny his existence. Uh, but I don't think that would be the case here. Here, it would be less about people saying, I don't believe there there is a God. And more about people who denied God with their lives. Right? So this would be people who would say, well, I can't imagine God caring about this. When this is something God's word has clearly spoken he does not like. He is against. He has called it a sin. These would be people who would say things like, well, I really think God just wants me to be happy. And that's an excuse to justify their sinful behavior. Right? It wouldn't have been so much people who said there is no God. It would have been people who said, yes, I believe in God, but I think God wants me to live like this or God's OK with me doing this. Now, the New Testament warns us about this attitude. It says they profess to know God, but in works they deny him 
being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. Now, here the interesting thing. David in Psalm 10 is not talking about outsiders. The wicked who are oppressing the righteous in Psalm 10 are not the wicked Gentiles. It is wicked Jews. People from within the nation of Israel have risen up and they are oppressing their own people. They have become wicked in their time. So these are people who are supposed to be a part of the covenant people of God. These are people who probably went to the temple on the Sabbath and offered their sacrifices and paid their tithes. These are people who outwardly appeared to be religious, but they really, they weren't. It was... Not that way. So what Titus is talking about is the same thing David is talking about. People who profess God with their mouth, but then they turn around and deny Him with their lives. Now again, this is huge. What what Titus, what Paul says in Titus is huge. They profess that they know God, and yet with their lives they deny Him. What are they really? They profess to be disciples of Jesus, but through their works, what are they really? Abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. And how important is it for us to check our lives? People can say anything. What's the testimony of their life? I was just reading in the Gospel of Luke today where John the Baptist was preaching repentance. And he said to, to, to come and be baptized as a sign of being repentant, to turn from your sin. And, and the people said, okay, what do I do? I'm, I'm repenting, I'm turning, what do I do? And he said, if you've got extra food, give it to those who don't. Share, don't be greedy. He told the tax collectors, they said, well, what do we do? They said, well, don't take more than what Rome requires from you. Don't stop cheating people. And the, and the Gentiles, the, the Roman guards, said, what do we do? Stop oppressing people. Stop stealing their stuff. Be content with your wages. So what would have been the sign they had truly repented of their sins? They stopped being greedy and they started being generous. When they stopped overcharging on their taxes and only collected what was due. When they stopped oppressing others and committing acts of violence against them. So what if... What if they went out and had enough food for them and someone else and saw someone else and didn't give it to them? Had they really repented? No. What if the next day at the tax collection booth, the tax collector still pushed people under his thumb to squeeze as much out of them as he possibly could? Had he really repented? No. What if the centurion walked away and beat somebody up to take his stuff because he liked it? Had he really repented? No. He professed it with their mouths, but they denied it with their lives. Proof. The proof. It's not in the words that are spoken nearly as much as in the lives that are lived. The wickedly renounce the Lord more with their lives than with their words. And God sees In verse 4, David again mentions pride. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is in none of his thoughts. The pride prevents them from seeking the Lord. 
A, a proud heart produces a stiff neck. And a stiff neck will not bow to anyone. Not even the Lord. This kind of pride is shown in different ways. It's shown in those who won't admit their sin or their need for a Savior. They might say things like, well, I'm not too bad. I'm basically a, a good person. It would be shown in those who feel they're too intelligent to believe God's Word. and their pride, they will say things like, well, I have a scientific mind and I couldn't possibly accept the Bible as God's Word. It would be shown by those who, who would say that, that the creation account is unbelievable. The fall, all have sinned, is unacceptable. The incarnation, if there was a God becoming man, is unimaginable. The, the cross, my sin deserved all of that. Well, that's unreasonable. The resurrection, people don't rise from the dead, never to die. Again, that's untenable. All of that is a picture of the wicked who in the pride of their countenance will not seek after God. And the reason is God is not in any of their thoughts. They live as though God were no big deal. They live as though God doesn't care. God nor His Word is not an active part of their lives or the decisions they make. God's Word and how it reveals God's will for morality plays no part in the morality they have. God's Word and, and what He has revealed about His will has nothing to do with how they, they treat their finances or they spend their money. God's Word and God's will is, has nothing to do how they kind of relationships they have and how they act in those relationships they have. They don't consider God before anything they do. And they do this really for two reasons. One is they're wicked. That's a sign. Another is that they are proud. Their pride has caused them to think they don't need God. They don't need His counsel. They don't need His advice. And they don't have to worry about God. They don't have to worry about God's will they don't have to worry about God's want. They don't have to worry about God's word in any area of their lives. They can do their own thing. Then in verse five, we see the judgments of the Lord are far above. Judgments are far above out of his sight. And the picture there is they are they, they don't see it. Now, whether they have taken it and put it out so they don't have to consider it or whether just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. They just can't fathom how they would face any sort of judgment from God for the way they live. But either way, it's one of those two. One of them is that they have just said, ah, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm, you believe that and you live how you want to, but I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. That'll never come to me. And another way is, I don't understand. I mean... In some cases, I think people just truly do not understand. They can't wrap their mind around it. But it's not because it doesn't make them innocent. It's just a sign of their depravity, their pride, their arrogance. They have put it out of their mind. They don't see it. They don't understand it. They, they don't think they'll ever have to deal with him. It's not something that they're concerned about. And then he says in verse 5 that they, they puff 
at their enemies. Or they sneer, I think some translations may say. Not only does the wicked person dominate and defy his enemies, but he sneers at them. This is just kind of a way to show contempt for them. And I think given the context, the enemy here isn't a like a peer enemy. Not like we're both on the battlefield with swords drawn and I'm sneering at you because I'm about to kill you. I think this goes back to their pride that causes them to persecute the poor. Their enemies aren't their equals. Their enemies are those they feel inferior to them. And so they don't care about them. I mean, it's just kind of a no, they're they're nothing. It is just a, a facial expression, an attitude of contempt toward these people. And then finally in verse 6, the, the wicked say in their heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Just absolute arrogance. Again, this goes back to pride. Nothing bad is going to happen to them is essentially what they're saying. Somebody would say to them, man, you're going to reap what you sow. Or you're going to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. Nothing's going to happen to me. Brother, I'm going to be fine the way I am. Nothing is going to happen to me. So they're not going to change their life. They're going to do what they've always done. Fully confident they're going to be okay in the end. And these things describe the attitude of the wicked. And the reality is God sees each and every one of them. Because God sees all the grief and all the evil in the world. And he will, in his time, bring about justice. And then finally, God sees the actions of the wicked. David began to describe the, the actions of the wicked. Now, verse 7, it's all about the mouth. How the wicked speak. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. And under his tongue is mischief. And vanity. But now cursing doesn't mean what we would call profanity. This doesn't mean they have a potty mouth as we might say. Instead, cursing in the Bible almost always refers to, to either maybe blaspheming God or cursing other people. Right? So it has more to do with maybe gossiping about somebody. Or running them down. It would be similar to what Paul says in Galatians 5.15 about biting and devouring other people. Right? So, so somebody who's always, they're an idiot, they're a moron, I hate them, what fools. And I mean, you, you know the idea. You, you're, you have social media, you see it. That is what, when the Bible talks about cursing, almost every time, that's what it's talking about. Is this Negative, evil, harsh, biting and devouring and tearing down of other humans made in the image of God with our mouths. And this is how the wicked act. This is how the wicked talk. Then he describes the, the mouth of the wicked as being filled with deceit. So they're full of cursing. They always have something bad to say about people. And they lie. They're not honest. They lie to get ahead. They lie to get their way. They lie to their enemies. They lie to their friends. They just are, are the kind of people you can't trust because they're always lying about something. And then fraud. King James translates it as fraud. 
I think other translations talk about it as oppression. But it, it carries with it the idea of oppressing someone. So it, it, I think it, what it means is using your words to get ahead at the expense of others. So let's say Scott and I work at the same place and we are both up for a promotion. So what I, I might do if I'm a wicked person is I might go to our mutual boss and, and kind of tell some bad things about Scott. Whether they're true or not, it's irrelevant. Right? What I'm trying to do is poison the well. Make it less likely he gets the promotion so that I will get the promotion. Right? It is this way of saying whatever I need to say to get my way. And if I have to use my words to stomp on other people to do it, that's fine. If I need to threaten to, to beat someone to death to make them stop doing what I don't want them to do and start doing what I want them to do, that's what the wicked do. The wicked use their mouths and they intimidate or they oppress or they squish people down so that they get their way at their expense. Whatever they can do to get ahead by their words, they will. And then he says, under their tongues is mischief and vanity. And the idea, I think, just carries with the idea of a mouth filled with poison. Right, So it's not just we've gone beyond talking bad about other people to it's just. Right, I mean, it is just do you ever talk to somebody and everything they say is bad? Right, I don't mean just like negative, like, you know, they can find the cloud behind every silver lining. I mean, beyond that, when you get through talking to them, you feel emotionally drained. No matter what. You read a book, well, they read that book, but it was stupid. And you ate somewhere, well, they ate there too, but they hate that place. And you made a friend, oh, they know them. Gosh, they're horrible human beings. I mean, everything. There's always something just blah, they have to say. I think this is kind of an Old Testament picture of what James says about a tongue being filled with unruly evil and being filled with deadly poison. So this is characteristics of the the mouth of a wicked person. Verse 8 through 11, he talks about the wicked in some of their actions. And it's interesting to notice sneakiness. We'll talk about the actual things they do. But look at verse 8 through 11 at all the ways it talks about how they sneak around. Right. So verse 8, they, they sit in the lurking places. They sit in the secret places. Their eyes are privily or secretly set against the poor. They lieth in wait secretly. They lieth in wait to catch. He croucheth and humbleth himself. So crouching and humbling is like they're, they're getting down so nobody can see them. And all of this pictures people being sneaky to accomplish their evil deeds. But they're not doing them out in the open so everybody can see who they are and what they're like. They're, they're trying to be sneaky. That is the focus here. They, they sit in the lurking places. They hide. They peek around. They want to do what they can do so nobody knows what they're doing. They don't want people to know for sure how wicked they are. So think about what we've talked about. They don't want everyone to know what their mouth is like. So they'll do it in secret. Just me and you, Gerald. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to pour all my venom out on you. But I'm not going to let everybody know it. Everybody else, I'm going to say, oh no, I'm just a... And I'll talk totally differently. It's sneaking around 
to do what need to do what it is they're trying to do. Looking for the right moment to strike so they can get ahead. Looking for the right place to be so they can get surprise on someone and cause the most damage. Whether it would be physical damage or emotional damage or relational damage or financial damage or spiritual damage, professional damage or reputational damage. They wait for just the right moment to pounce. They're like an assassin lying in wait for his victim. Or a lion waiting for his prey. They lurk, they hide, and they wait. And when they feel they can get the most out of their attack and get the most, the least amount of damage to themselves, whether that would be being seen or acknowledged at what they've done, then they, they pounce. The goal seems to be in most cases to ensure people don't know how much they had to do with the downfall, the damage done to another. This would be the the politicking and scheming people do to get ahead at any cost, to ruin someone they don't like, all the while staying in the background. I was part of a church once, and there was a, a person in the church who who didn't like the pastor, and so, but he would never openly criticize the pastor. And so what he would do is, leading up to the, the business meetings, he would go to one guy in particular and he would get him and he would fill his head with all of these things. And then he would tell him all of this stuff and well, the pastor's not doing this and he ought to be doing that and he's like this and don't you think that and don't you... And he would just get that guy all, all a Twitter with anger and frustration. And then the guy that stirred it all, he would sit down and this other guy would jump up and boom... I mean, there would just be an explosive business meeting that caused untold damage to the pastor's family as they had to listen to the horrible things this guy said. And meanwhile, the guy that was standing, he took all the heat. He was the one who was the, the focal point, the face of it all. But the guy over here, and I'm not pointing over here because it's either one of y'all, it's just where he sat was over here. The guy over here was the one who was secretly behind it. Always. Always. And it was just this same attitude, these things right here. And as we see in verse 11, the wicked say God doesn't see. God has forgotten. God's not paying attention. But again, in verse 14, they're wrong. God has seen. God has beheld. And in his own time, God will Bring about judgment. And again, looking at this in light of the fact these were Jews, religious people in some ways. It's not a jump to say these people who David calls wicked here. Are the similar sort of people Jesus refers to in Matthew 7. Who will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Two final thoughts and, and we'll close. First, when it seems like the wicked are prospering and getting away with it or oppressing the righteous and getting away with it, the key for us as disciples of Jesus is to realize they're not. They may well prosper in this life. And they may well get away from get away with it in this life. But God has seen it all. 
And God will bring them into judgment eventually. And what God can do to bring them into judgment and what God will do in judgment is far more severe than what human courts or human people could do to that. And so for us, we don't despair. We know Christ is victorious. He has won. He has seen. And judgment will come. The second is to recognize what our culture often deems as no big deal. God regards as wickedness. We must not think wickedness will ever be okay with God. Not wickedness in our culture. Not wickedness in those we love. And not wickedness in us. God will never be okay with our pride causing us to treat others with contempt and disdain. God will never be okay with us professing Him with our mouths and renouncing Him with our lives. God will never be okay with us arrogantly saying, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm not going to change. God will never be okay when we use our mouths as instruments of unrighteousness to bite and devour and tear others down. God will never be okay when we scheme and sneak and politic in an effort to get someone to get ahead or to get our way. And to think God will be okay with it, it is to say God has forgotten. God's hiding His face. He will never see. As disciples of Jesus, we must never live this way. We must never minimize or justify or accept wickedness in any way that we find it, whether it's in our culture, whether it's in someone we love, or whether it's in our own hearts and our own lives. Jesus died for sin. And we must never minimize what sent Jesus to the cross. We must never accept what sent Jesus to the cross. We must never live in what sent Jesus to the cross. If there is something in our lives from what we've seen here Something in our lives God calls wickedness and we have learned to justify it. Our need tonight is to recognize God is right and we are wrong. That's repentance. God is right and we are wrong. And we then turn to God through Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The good news is when there is that wickedness in us and we turn to Him in confession, He has promised to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because He is always faithful. Rather than accepting it in our lives, minimizing it in our lives, or justifying it in our lives, we take it to the cross, we leave it with God, we receive His mercy, And we move out determined to live different if we can. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight. We are glad to know you see. Father, often it does seem the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. But you're aware. You see what's going on. And there is a day of judgment coming. Help us, Father, to live in light of that judgment. Lord, as disciples of Jesus, we know that we'll stand before judgment. We'll give an account for our lives. We'll see how we have built upon the foundation of Christ, whether with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. 
Let us be intentional to build with gold, silver, and precious stone. Let us be intentional to put out of our lives anything that would be wicked or wrong or would burn up on that day. But God, let us live in light of the judgment too when it comes to others. Father, those we love, those we know who may profess Jesus with their mouth, but their lives demonstrate the kind of wickedness we've seen here. Father, their need isn't for us to tell them they're okay. Their need isn't for us to accept their profession of faith without challenging it. Their need is for us to tell them the truth in love. To show them from your word that though they profess him with their mouth, they deny him with their life. They need to repent of their sins and believe the good news of great joy. A Savior has come. Let us be a people, God, with courage to speak the truth, to speak it in love. To help people, the wicked, help them find repentance and faith and salvation in Jesus. For you died for them just like you died for us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.